If you trust Toyota to get its new Land Cruiser 300 right out of the blocks, you are a clinical bolted-on fanboy. I certainly don't think they can do it, and the evidence appears to be on my side. So you bring the hate, I'll bring the facts. Details next. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. <laughs> for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously. Or you can just click the card that's up there now, dude. This is the second and final part of a two-part series about why you should leave it at least a year before biting the bullet on the overhyped and most probably underdone new Land Cruiser 300. Yesterday in part one, I covered the media's complicity in overhyping the lardy-assed new queen of the desert. Card up there. I will wait here with infinite patience while you catch up. Today it's the new V6 twin turbo diesel engine in the crosshairs, the one with the hot V, which reminds me so much of Tiffany at the office. In this case, however, with exhaust ports upstairs in the V and the inlet ports on the outside, which is kind of ass backwards in the context of mainstream V configured engines. A hot V. <sighs> like, it's not intrinsically a bad idea, okay? And my core message to you, if you are thinking about slamming 100,000 bucks or more on the table and jumping in the queue to own a new 300 is, dude, just look at Toyota's fairly shameful recent track record with deploying new technology. The facts kind of scream they're getting bad at this. This is Toyota's most complex and ambitious piece of new technology in recent memory. Plus the 10-speed transmission and the terrain sensing and what have you. I mean, of course, complexity is the enemy of reliability. But then again, so is the average bean counter who runs R&D departments increasingly. And I know you're going to say Toyota spends millions on reliability. This is true, but specifically what Toyota actually does, in my view, is spend millions to market the concept that Toyota is the big swinging zucchini of reliability. I'd suggest that this is objectively not the case, at least not anymore. A gulf separates the message and the reality here and it appears to me to be getting wider. And what I'm suggesting to you is today, let someone else be the lab rat. Because the best way to manage this risk is to let others run this experiment and then you can just lunch off the results for free without being part of it. Just watch from the sidelines and see how much egg there ultimately is and whose faces it actually adheres to. And if the 300 does prove itself bulletproof and all the egg attaches to me, I will get myself a pack of big sook baby wipes and just live with it. 
I'm saying that the past is a predictor of the future. And this is a risk you should not ignore based upon Toyota's recent technology deployment botches. We manage risk this way all the time, each of us in other domains. For example, if you don't crash, you actually didn't need to wear a seatbelt on that drive. Like legally you needed to, but in the domain of life-saving, you really didn't need to be wearing it. But because the risk of injury in a crash is pretty high and because the potential consequences of crashing unrestrained are profound, we Australians, statistically at least, we wear our seatbelts on every drive. There's that. Okay, so let us warm up, shall we? Because I don't want you Toyota fanboys out there to go out too hard, too early and pop a gasket and then not be able to hate me all the way to the very end, as we would say as kids in the back of the car. First up, let us check out Andrew St. Pierre White's video on his excellent channel, 4 by Overland, which he uploaded on November the 1st of 2018. You can search for that and go and find it. I'm not going to detain you with it now. The salient facts are 9,000 odd Ks into owning his 79 series for Outback Adventuring, the rear brake rotors just go poopy in their trousers, entertainingly, as long as you're not ASPW. Anyway, ASPW goes out, complains about this, gets a double helping of no craps given at the local dealership. This is the brakes on a vehicle that is just one step removed from Grandpappy's Massey Ferguson, let's not forget. And ASPW is a bolted-on Big T fanboy, and he's got 250,000 subscribers. So, <sighs> dudes, it's really not normal for the brakes to wear out in 9,000 Ks of Outback Touring. You don't even use them that often in the frigging Outback it's a problem that screams manufacturing defect, like bad materials or something of that nature. And then, of course, moving on, Toyota launches the RAV4 Hybrid in 2019. Buyers queue up, they're over the horizon, and there's suddenly some mysterious availability problem, and you simply cannot buy one. Twelve months later, the waiting list is kind of longer than the waiting list for a Ferrari. That's exactly how Australia's second most hated motoring journalist, Josh Dowling, put it in print, writing for the Meat Society. I mean, car advice. like It's hard to keep up. I always get them mixed up. I don't know why. Deafening silence from the big T on what the problem actually is. So... This was a vehicle, okay, that was R&D'd in the 2015s-ish and confirmed for sale in Schittsville in 2018, launched here in 2019 and still could not be supplied in 2020. From a company with nearly 600 billion US dollars in assets, nearly 400,000 employees, more than a quarter of a billion US dollars in revenue and they're making more than 9 million vehicles annually. I'd suggest, respectfully, as fuck-ups go, whatever went wrong with the hybrids, it must have been truly epic. This is like evidence, right? Smoke and fire, they are linked 
on the balance of probability. And then there's the dusting issue, so endlessly entertaining, which is killing 200 series engines all over. At least the ones that go out there adventuring. Aftermarket outfits busily engineering better airboxes or fixes to existing airboxes, and I'd suggest that getting an airbox right in the factory at the design stage is actually not the same thing as getting the crew of Apollo 13 back to Earth safely, you know, at least in the domain of relative difficulty. And finally, of course, because every cake needs a glacé cherry for the summit of the icing, the exquisite botch of the Toyota DPF system when Toyota tried to implement one on the 2.8 diesel in Hilux, Fortuna and Prado. This has always been a fairly mediocre engine, at least that's how I call it, like displaces 2.8 litres, but it cannot match the specific power output of the Hyundai Kia 2.2 diesel anywhere from 1750 RPM all the way up to peak power. Go figure. And then Toyota botches the DPF implementation in the way that outfits like Hyundai Kia don't. The Hiluxes, Fortunas and Prados are pooping in their pretty pink panties all the way to Dingo Piss Creek. <laughs> so entertaining, except of course, if you own one. Toyota has jammed a fifth injector into the exhaust flow to facilitate the regeneration of the DPF, right? And it either bakes itself open, apparently, or it bakes itself closed, causing the DPF to regenerate endlessly in the case of being baked open or just to clog up by virtue of being baked closed and thus never managing to regenerate. <laughs> nice one, dudes. This is an educated guess about the true nature of the problem. I, I can't think of another mechanism that fits the symptoms, okay? And Toyota has never, to my knowledge, at least spilt the beans on what went wrong. Go figure. And of course, Toyota's response to this problem being faced out there in service by people like you who spend actual money, their own money, on those products is, well, imagine an ostrich with its head in the sand, okay? And now, imagine that ostrich makes 9 million vehicles a year and employs 400,000 people. It's kind of that. There was a protracted period of COD, compulsive ostrich disorder, and suddenly Toyota started distributing these magic DPF band-aids. Deny, deny, deny. And then here's the fix, dude. If Hyundai or Kia had done that, I'd suggest, there would have been a frigging feeding frenzy. Instead, the media tut-tutted it all away. This wasn't Toyota's fault, it was those regulations, those emissions regulations. Fraser Stronach wrote an insomnia-curing apology of exactly this nature in that great bastion of advertiser suction, which car? Well done, dude. Oddly, he did not manage to explain how some manufacturers managed to get DPF implementations right. And Toyota is a rather big advertiser, like, go figure. 
Nor did I see him address the fact that emissions regulations are here for the benefit of human health. That would be your health, my health, our kids, our aging parents, people like that, people you know. And this is because exhaust pollution kills more people prematurely than road trauma. It's called a fact. He actually claimed that emissions regulations were the problem here. Clearly, the best emissions regulations are the strictest ones. And Australia drags the chain quite badly at implementing them because essentially we have dickheads in charge with lobby groups such as the disgracefully Toyota-appeasing FCAI telling them exactly when to jump and how high. Equally entertaining was the filthy letter which Toyota's asshole corporate lawyers sent Berrimer Diesel over this, they're an independent workshop, after the chaps there started pulling the big T's pants right down by calling them out on this definite problem. I have a copy of that letter. It is an exquisite example of how Toyota really rolls when they think no one is watching. Pro tip, okay? Companies in Australia generally cannot sue for defamation. So that's rather nice. So, against this rich backdrop of R&D dickheadery, there's this new V6 diesel with its hot V. Just on the R&D thing, okay, don't get me wrong, I think Toyota's engineers themselves are actually very competent dudes. I just get the overpowering stench of bean counter when I look at these various fuck-ups, okay? It seems to me common that that's the causal factor. You know, if I had to go on the balance of probabilities, why is this all going wrong? I'd go, ah yes, bean counter. Because this is exactly what happens when you let bean counters run R&D, okay? They never go with the best option. The cheapest option always wins. Hot Vs are actually quite a nice idea with some distinct advantages. There's no doubt on this. A Hot V allows you to get the turbos fair up the clacker of the exhaust manifold, and this achieves two really positive things. First, that's where the exhaust flow is at its most energetic. Like, in any combustion cycle, the mixture burns, okay? It expands energetically, and that's what throws the piston down the bore, which is what propels you, your gut, your lovely wife, and your aluminium effluent box all the way to Dingo Piss Creek. <laughs> However, the exhaust valve, well, it opens before the expansion is fully complete, and this helps the exhaust to, uh, to, um, it helps the exhaust to, uh, to fuck off out the manifold and ultimately out the exhaust pipe. Yes. But you do lose some energy by doing this, which could hypothetically do useful work, and this is kind of an engineering trade-off compared with what you'd lose by pumping that exhaust out with the piston if the valve were to open somewhat later in the cycle, okay? Turbos lunch off this otherwise lost flow energy pretty clearly. A turbo uses the energy still in the energetic exhaust flow to drive a pump to pump air in on the inlet side. It's a pretty neat 
thermodynamics hack, and a hot V puts the turbos in a really strong position to capitalize on this most effectively. And the closer you can get the turbo to the source of the exhaust, the better, because that's where the flow is hottest, meaning most energetic. Second big advantage, it reduces the time taken for the increased flow when you power on to manifest itself as increased air delivery on the inlet side, which you might know as turbo lag. So hot Vs reduce that, and that's all good. And the lag reduction thing is one of those prescribed Toyota leg-humping media spin points which the mainstream motoring media has latched onto to keep Toyota's ad revenue flowing in. But a hot V is not all good news, pretty clearly, and the not good news part is unacknowledged in the reports I've read on the 300, like, can they get it right? And that's got to be partly ignorance on the part of the reporters and partly willful omission to keep Toyota sweet for the ad bucks. Hot Vs are championed by some of the Euros too. The three-pronged suppository's mighty AMG GT has a hot V, I think. A few upmarket Volkswagens do too, and by that, of course, I mean Audis. And the problem is essentially heat with a hot V, obviously. It's hard to get rid of the latent heat in the V at times. Especially like this, okay? Like, let's say you and your gut and your lovely wife have just hauled your effluent up cow turd spur. You've slogged its guts out all the way to the summit of Bogan Peak. And you've stopped with the engine running and the air conditioning on to admire the majesty of the endless camel fart flat, kind of near where they shot Priscilla. All that heat from all that gut, lovely wife, and effluent box hauling, suddenly no airflow, even on a relatively cool outback Shitsville day, like, say it's only 45 degrees C ambient temperature, like not a really hot one. All that heat has got nowhere to go suddenly, nowhere to bleed off, so it kind of soaks in, and that's the problem. Now, you know I have mad love for BMW, right? Because they do the right thing by their customers. BMW has a hot V in its mighty N63 engine. That's the 4 to 4.4 litre twin turbo petrol V8 that's been deployed since about, if I had to guess, 2008. I friggin' love that engine. I love it. To me, it's up there, autoerotically, with the current BMW M-tuned straight sixes, and that's a big claim. I do get rather the TP. I'm just thinking about either. Rigidity certainly goes up when I think about both. By 47%. Chief, would you believe? 49. But the N63, like Tiffany from The Office, 52. It's not without its dark side, okay? Specifically in the case of the engine, stemming from poor thermal management near the turbos, right? Oil consumption can be excessive and valve stem seals can wear out prematurely. On diesels, right, we're talking about exhausts at six or seven hundred degrees C, which is what, about 
1250F, straight into the turbos, okay? Bleeding into the V, especially if you stop or you just lope along in sync with a tailwind after a hard climb. That's what we're talking about in an off-roader. That's where the maximum heat soak's gonna be on a red hot ambient temperature day. There's gotta be heat shielding above all of that stuff too, because we wouldn't want the bonnet, that is a hood, we wouldn't want that getting barbecue hot, would we? ARB might doubtless release a bolt-on barbecue plate for the 300 and a heat shield removal kit. You mark my words, this is a distinct possibility. Like, heat rises and it's gonna get trapped in there when airflow stagnates, okay? And it's going to be very hard indeed for gaskets and seals and oil to maintain integrity over the long term at those kinds of temperatures. And I'm not saying this cannot be managed, like, it can. I'm not saying Toyota cannot get this right, they can. What I am saying is, Look at the things they botched recently and how simple they were. They're all far simpler than deploying this all new engine with its all new flow philosophy and all new inherent management challenges. Is that a risk you really want to run at a hundred grand or more per roll of the dice? If it does fall over, do you want the giant ostrich to excavate a hole in which its head may reside for the foreseeable weeks to months in the manner of the 2.8 DPF fiasco. Like, do you really want that? Like, I hope Toyota gets this right. I sincerely do. And I hope not too many people get inconvenienced. But the risk that they will not get this right is significant. At least it is to me. And I'm saying, therefore, perhaps it's prudent for you to sit this one out initially and watch the game from the sidelines for like the first 12 months. In my view, this engine, at least for early adopters, is likely to be a lemon simply because some senior executive dipshit bean counter who's never had his hands on the tools or visited the R&D centre has decided to run with the five cent valve seals when the seven cent ones would have been far more durable, because that's generally the underlying anatomy when these kinds of fiascos are concerned, right? It's a corporate culture thing. And I don't know that Toyota has solved what, in my opinion, is its biggest problem here. If you ask me, there's plenty of recent track record suggesting they're actually getting worse.